0: Climate change presents a terrifying future. Without transformative action by the countries of the world, temperatures are likely to rise to levels that make most of the planet uninhabitable to human life. So many voices that dominate public discussion are scientists, politicians, fossil fuel companies and communities fearful of these threats. But we don't hear much about what is going on psychologically. We seek to remedy this today. Our changemaker chat is with Margaret Klein Salomon. Margaret is a trained psychoanalyst whose own story was one of shifting from ignoring climate change to understanding it to now acting on the climate emergency. Based out of the United States, she founded an organisation called the Climate Mobilisation to do this work. Today, she uses her training to provide some conceptual tools for better interpreting the crisis we have before us. She gives us language for understanding fear, for making sense of what we think of as apathy or disengagement, and for seeing what is possible if we embrace acting on climate like our lives depended on it. She's also just released a book called Facing the Climate Emergency that explores the questions she raises here in a lot more detail. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. We are supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au/policy/lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. So welcome to the program, Margaret. Thanks for having me. It is our pleasure to have you here in Australia. We're so delighted that you're here sharing the work that you've done that has been of global importance around climate change. So our first question is, you know, if you could describe to, to our listeners... What is it that you do that makes you a change maker?
1: I would call myself a paradigm shifter. Uh, I'm trying to lead first the climate movement and then the entire public into emergency mode on climate which means to understand the scale and scope and urgency of the threat that we're facing as well as the solution that we need to create together.
0: Wow. So that... Enormous ambition, like, obviously makes me incredibly <laughs> curious as to what led you to get to that place. Like, tell us, like, take us back where you feel is the right place. Um, tell us how you decided that you needed to be that kind of change maker.
1: So, while I was in New York City earning my PhD in clinical psychology, I was becoming more and more alarmed by the climate emergency. Hurricane Sandy happened, Hurricane Irene happened. And also just as I was becoming more and more mature, including through my own psychotherapy, my personal defenses against seeing the truth about the climate were lessening. So while I used to read an online article, a few sentences of the article, and say, nope, I cannot handle this X, right? Get it out of my face. That I slowly started to be able to tolerate more uh, fear and other upsetting feelings and, and read the whole thing. So as I was going through that process, I started to think about how I could... Contribute? How I could engage with this crisis, and I thought because I was an academic and had been in school virtually my entire life, I thought. I will start a blog, and I will <laughs> through blogs the world will change. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And but it wasn't it, my ambition. Really, wasn't to change the world. It was to join the conversation again, as academics do. And I thought I'm going to make witty commentary, and I'll be a brand, and I'll go on the radio, and that was that was my plan. Until I consulted with a very good friend about this idea, a very politically savvy friend, who told me, don't start a blog. Discourse isn't enough. Think, what could you do that could actually solve this crisis? And it's one of those moments that truly my life has never been the same since that conversation. And I, I don't want it to be because once my friend laid that challenge out for me, I realized I had never wanted anything nearly as much as I wanted to do everything that I could to solve this emergency. And it really shifted my conception of myself from, again, an academic and, you know, who can be smart and witty and give good commentary to a climate warrior who is just full on in this, taking personal responsibility for preventing the collapse of civilization and the natural world. Not on my watch.
0: Yeah, wow. And you've done such an extraordinary job in actually living up to that goal, right? And we're going to get into some of the work that you do as a climate warrior and how you have manifest that uh, identity. But I, I actually was just wondering, obviously there's more that um, you brought to that to your capacity to t- take on that shift and there's more to you and more to your story than just that moment. Like the fact that you were studying psychoanalysis and have a deep understanding of of psychology is interesting to me. I know that there must be other stories there too. What are some of the other capacities or experiences or teachings or lessons that you brought to your work
1: now? So not only did I study clinical psychology, but my father is still a practicing psychoanalyst in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I grew up. And I really grew up in a culture of psychoanalysis. All of our family friends were psychoanalysts, and uh, you know, we talked all the time about our feelings or our dreams and unconsciouses and and so forth. It's really kind of a worldview. And also, I've b- spent a About 15 years in my own psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, which has absolutely, in my hardest times, uh, like saved my life and in my best times just spurred me to greater health and ability to cope with difficult things and, you know, press on, handle difficult situations in my organization and so forth. So that is definitely my core lens. And the thing about psychoanalysis and psychotherapy is that it is so hopeful. People come in who are hurting and often devastated and confused. And, you know, they're they're there for a reason. And it is a, a wonderful and almost magical thing to feel capable of healing people through words and understanding and empathy, but it is real. And so I believe totally in the possibility of transformative change. I believe that humans are meant for change and growth. We are built for it. All of the uh, really negative talk about human nature as inherently greedy and violent and nasty. I I think that's totally wrong. I think that is a the I think our society is sick and we can be well. We can make ourselves well. So that orientation is really critical. Growing up, my grandmother is a Holocaust survivor and we heard a lot about the Holocaust a lot and that gave me a real sense of both the catastrophic and a sense of moral responsibility that about active intervention rather than passivity. One of my grandmother's stories that she told over and over and over was about her schoolteacher who she was one of the top students in her class but she was kicked out for being Jewish and when her school teacher passed her on the street he wouldn't look at her in the face he he just averted his eyes and you know to to her knowledge he wasn't a high level nazi he wasn't a concentration camp guard all he did was just go along and ignore her. Ignore the situation. And that passivity, uh, all it takes for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing, it, That is has been really baked into me in a way that I think is extremely helpful. I mean, imagine, imagine if we could have prevented the Holocaust from fully unfolding. I mean, so, okay, so then the the last, I think, really big piece of this is that I've also suffered uh, personal trauma and tragedy, which is that my first love, transformative love in my life, my high school boyfriend— We were together for two years, and then he had a series of really acute psychotic episodes that ultimately led to his suicide a few years ago. And the experience of watching someone—he was just an incredibly talented and special person. And the experience of watching someone go from— healthy and vibrant and talented and charismatic to confused and not making sense and scary was something that, as an 18-year-old, I was totally unprepared for and had no idea what to do. There's so much silence around mental illness, and it was considered at my school— No one wanted to talk about it. No one knew what to say. No one, and because of that, I felt so alone. So that experience, while truly devastating to me as a young person and obviously also to him and his family and his friends, it also prepared me for this work because I understand catastrophic breakdown in a way that most people don't. I think that most Americans and probably most Australians would tell you, oh, climate climate change can't be that bad because generally when they've worried about things in their life, they haven't turned out as bad as they feared. And this experience really showed me, like my grandmother had been telling me, that actually horrible things do happen. And so that's one part of it, a sense of the catastrophic. But the other part is about the critical importance of telling the truth, even when it's hard. I felt so alone With my experience in high school, and like no one understood, I didn't have people to talk to, I didn't know what to do. And with climate, the number one emotional experience that people report who do understand the acuity and danger of the situation tell me is, I feel so alone. No one understands. My family doesn't understand. No one wants to talk about it. And so my experience for many years, I wished I could just take it all back and not have gone through this traumatic loss. But this climate work has changed that in that I realize the ways in which it has prepared me to be able to do things like say to strangers or a room full of people who I don't know we need to transform our economy and society at emergency speed or civilization will collapse and billions of people will die and millions of species will become extinct and that is a message that people don't like to hear just like they don't like to hear that this incredibly wonderful special person is in a mental hospital but i i no longer care about making people uncomfortable what the message the truth is more important than that. So I ask people to handle their uncomfortable feelings, and I'm willing to help them do that as much as I can without compromising the truth.
0: Yeah, wow. It certainly sounds that even though you came to this space in a a small period of time, you actually were walking towards this space your whole life.
1: You know, it's interesting. In my book, I challenge readers to reimagine their life story in exactly that way, to say, what if everything, all of my blessings and challenges and my education and what my parents and grandparents and ancestors taught me, what if everything was leading up to this moment and preparing me to be the change to be the hero that humanity needs and i certainly feel that way about my own life but i don't think it's just me i think i think other people can i mean that's that's what we have right is our life experience and we can use it we can use all of it for this new and monumental and critically important challenge yeah so let's talk about
0: <laughs> the challenge that we have and the sort of mode by which we can, as a humanity and as individuals, face it. In your work, not just your recent book, but also in your work in the last few years, you've built this framework around emergency mode and that we need to move into emergency mode. Tell us more about what you mean by that.
1: Emergency mode is a fundamentally different mode of mental functioning than normal mode or business as usual. And individuals, groups, or even whole countries, or hopefully the whole world can enter emergency mode. So you can imagine as an individual, if your house is on fire, what, what happens in your mind? What do you think about, and what do you do? Emergency mode means intense focus, prioritization of resources, and all towards achieving safety. You have to get yourself and your family out of the house. That's it. It's not about – it doesn't matter what you were doing five minutes ago. You can have been doing your taxes, uh, reading a wonderful book, getting in a fight with your spouse. It doesn't matter because once the emergency is there, you have to act now and you have to act with – total seriousness. So, a whole country can enter emergency mode as the United States and Australia did during World War II in which we after years of denial and isolationism, Americans said, "Oh, that's a European war. Let it stay overseas. It's not our it's not our issue. Stay out of it." After years of that denial, The attack on Pearl Harbor created a collective awakening in which we understood as a country that we were all in danger, that this was an all-or-nothing situation, there is no end but victory, and so we, we went all in. We had all hands on deck, a full society mobilization that transformed our economy in just a few years, from a consumer economy to a war economy, and we shattered every production record in history. We achieved the impossible, quote-unquote, in across several domains. Forty uh, percent of American vegetables were grown at home. The top in victory gardens, the top marginal tax rate was 94% on the highest earners. 10% of Americans moved into a new state to work on a war job. There was a huge migration in the United States because of this. It was—it's like night and day. Oh, uh, meat, gasoline, sugar, tires, and other commodities were rationed, and everyone got a fair share. These these are the kinds of economic changes that are not even on the table during normal mode. No one no one would think of these things because they're they're drastic. But that's the point is when the house is on fire, when everything is on the line, then you do what it takes and you bring everyone along.
0: So one of the things that I find so interesting about your your speaking engagements on these topics, but also your book, is that you bring your skills and your life experience from your childhood on, your life experience as someone who understands psychology and psychoanalytic training, to these questions of, of not only how to fight climate change, but how to think about how, what to do in terms of being able to encourage people towards climate action or to be able to interpret and diagnose climate inaction. Like you sort of have quite a um, strong understanding of what's going on in someone's head when one or either of those things are going on. Can you, look, that is something that's really not well known, I reckon, amongst the climate movement. I think a lot of people don't really have a sense of of that. I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little about how concepts, uh, emotions like fear and pain and groupthink play out in this climate space?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I do I do agree that these concepts are not discussed in the climate movement or climate conversation nearly enough. S- climate scientists told us about this problem, and that's obviously incredible, and we owe them a tremendous debt for calling our attention to this. But they have also, in many ways, set the culture and the terms of the discussion in a way that I do not think is helpful. The kind of hyper-rational, numbers-focused, science section of the newspaper kind of approach is very limited because this is not a science issue. This is an everything issue, and we all have a responsibility to engage with it. So some key concepts are, number one, how we relate to our feelings and the feelings that come up, the incredibly powerful feelings that come up when we look at what is actually happening in our climate and in our world. And like like I said, our society is sick. And one of the reasons why is that we don't relate well to our feelings. How people generally relate to them is by judging them, censoring them, trying to avoid painful feelings. And it's amazing, but what happens when you do that is your feelings end up controlling you. And instead, I recommend an approach, and this is not just on climate, this is on every topic, but An approach of compassionately and non-judgmentally welcoming your feelings with curiosity, realizing that there's no such thing as a thought crime or a feeling crime. They're all okay. Humans are very irrational, and we all have all sorts of crazy feelings, and it's all fine. Murderous feelings are fine. Perverted feelings are fine. Everything's fine. Irrational feelings, being jealous of your sister, being you know, rageful towards your mother. Well, it does it anything Feeling love or sexual attraction towards the wrong person. I mean, it's all— we're, we're just – we're messy. And the amazing thing is by accepting that internal experience, we gain a tremendous amount of control over our actions, which is the only thing that does carry a moral weight and that does impact the world. This is so important w- with climate because the feelings are – huge almost overwhelming they can easily be overwhelming but if we if we approach them with curiosity compassion and non-judgment then it opens up an incredible space to maneuver we we are not paralyzed by them we can in fact be motivated by them and we can find a synthesis. It doesn't. It doesn't mean just do what you feel, act from your feelings. It's not that you you understand your feelings, you explore them, and then you create a synthesis with your rational mind and your values, and decide on a course of action.
0: So, why don't you give me an example as where as to where you've done this? Maybe this is maybe with Hurricane Sandy or something
1: like that. So one example that comes up for me often in, in my work is that as a naturally, and probably also culturally but competitive person, I often feel in relationship to other organizers or organizations, uh, competitiveness or envy. And that's fine. That's human. I can feel that way, but then when I achieve this synthesis of looking at my values and my rational mind, I realize this is not a zero-sum game. These are my allies. I actually want them to succeed. They're working to protect humanity in the living world, too, and that's my highest priority. So if instead I censored myself and said, oh, no, 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 I would never feel that way. I don't feel that way, then you start to, you have to start to justify your feelings and you might say something like oh yeah they're bad they you know they deserve the, they deserve this or or, you know quote unquote accidentally say something rude or cutting N- nothing human is alien to me and to all of us We we all share these core experiences and if we can just accept them they don't, they don't have power anymore. So, yeah, so in naming it without acting, then thinking
0: about it and connecting it to who you are, you're able to do something much more powerful than just being, by being ruled by them.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Or, or another example, you know, if I'm angry at my husband, which has occasionally happened, <laughs> then I can, I can ask myself, okay, I feel this way, but is it, you know, is this fair? Am I right to feel this way or is this, you know, have my, are my feelings hurt by something that really wasn't in his control? And so, so yeah, it's really freeing. Do
0: you know what I am enjoying in this is that this is a different understanding. Like if you apply this to the question of climate emergency, right? People some, sometimes think of emergency as urgent and that you don't have time to think, you don't have time to do anything, you've just got to crazily sort of run and ra- run around and do as many things as possible. But you're presenting a really different understanding of that frame. You're saying... Yes, it's an emergency. We need to act to the scale of the problem. We need a World War II style set of actions. But we don't eliminate our thinking brain in the process of doing this. Indeed, we've got to take our thinking and our capacity to respond, our values like our justice values. We've got to take them all with us as we take on this question of emergency.
1: Absolutely. And so looking to apply this general emotional framework to the climate emergency specifically, There's all kinds of emotions come up, and again, they're all fine, but some that deserve special attention are fear and grief, and then also, I think, anger, guilt, and shame. But just to talk about fear and grief a little bit, fear has an absolutely terrible reputation in the climate movement. People equate fear with panic and with, as you said, Unthinking, unreflective, immoral action. And that can be true, but it absolutely is not equivalent to fear. It is absolutely not the only way to handle fear. Fear is an evolved mechanism in humans and other animals that translates, it literally translates a perception of risk or danger into self-protective action. If our ancestors didn't have fear, we wouldn't be here because they would have been eaten by predators and just stand there as the bear got closer and closer. So fear, if you feel afraid of the climate emergency, that makes total sense and it's you, got, you have to listen to that. Do not try and suppress it. Do not try to get other people to suppress it or not feel that way. It is a signal. Grief is the other emotion that everybody is going through, everybody in Australia. I've been here for almost two weeks, and people are hurting. And it makes sense. A billion animals died in the bushfires— millions of people have already died because of the climate emergency, generally the world's poorest people. We grieve these losses because they matter. And we are connected to that, those people and that life that has been lost. If we try to suppress our grief and not feel it, we are cutting ourselves off from our connectedness and our empathy for others in a way that is dangerous and destructive. Our grief comes from the best parts of ourselves and it is worth honoring. Not just not just even non-judgmentally accepting, but actually honoring as an indicator of our love. The, there is also another kind of grief that I'd like to discuss, which is grieving the future that we thought we had. Each of us has ideas about the future, goals, hopes, dreams. I thought I would be a psychologist in private practice. I knew I wanted to write books. And I thought I would have a family. What a lovely life I had planned. But as I started to understand the climate emergency, I had to come to terms with the fact that it wasn't going to happen. I mean, sure, it could happen for a while. I could be in New York right now uh, working on that life. But as more and more states collapse due to drought and food shortage and unrest as the fires burn and the sea levels rise i knew that i would not be okay i i knew that my own safety and my family's safety would be threatened and but even before that even before the emergency was going to come for me and my privileged american family i knew that the pain of watching the world collapse the global south collapse and the just watching it all play out would be unbearably painful and because my grandmother taught me to not be a bystander, I knew I, I couldn't do it. So the thing is, when you grieve the life you thought you had, the future you thought you had, it leaves a space for somebody new, something new. And I encourage everyone to fill that space To create a new vision of the future based on being a climate warrior, being a hero, a protector, whatever you want to call it, but taking this mission on as your own, saying not on my watch, this is not, I, I will do everything I can to prevent this catastrophe and build a world that works for everyone.
0: Awesome. Thank you. And it makes me want to ask to sort of take this, to make this live, right? So people are acting. There is a movement growing. You talk in the book about there's a new movement being born, one that is acting at the scale and pace of change. Tell us about that movement. What does it look like? Where do you see it? What are its attributes?
1: Yeah. Hallelujah. The movement is here. for, For about 30 years, the climate movement and environmental movement was dominated by gradualism, the idea that we should make small changes over decades to slightly reduce the problem. And I I don't think that was ever a good idea. But as the climate emergency got worse and worse, it has shown itself to be, uh, I mean, honestly, truly useless. Um, And in some uh, instances, worse than useless because it gives people a false understanding of what is actually going on. But – the amazing news is that there is a real movement out there that does understand the extent of the emergency and is advocating for a solution that could actually work. And that is Extinction Rebellion, the Sunrise Movement in the United States, the youth movement that's calling for a Green New Deal, the school strikers, and my organization, the Climate Mobilization, that along with some allies, especially Australian allies. We have spread climate emergency declarations to over 1,350 governments worldwide, making climate emergency media mentions go up by 10,000 percent. And Oxford English Dictionary named it the word of the year in 2019. So, and I should say, there's many, many other efforts that are also in emergency mode, local efforts, tribal efforts. Right now in Canada, indigenous groups and their allies all over the country are shutting down all rail traffic, protesting the expansion of the fossil fuel infrastructure. It, so I, I name some national organizations, but there's, there's probably hundreds working on these at at local level or state level of government and around the world. And I think for our listeners, the thing for them to get
0: excited about is
1: anyone can do this, right? Like what you're
0: saying is you don't need to be a large, well-funded, environmental NGO to do this. Actually, volunteers can get together and start making change as long as they're thinking about the sort of the scale of the problem. There's actually there's actually lots that anyone can do.
1: The first thing that actually the only thing that I suggest that every single person do is start talking about the climate emergency and talk about it as much as possible and talk about it emotionally and personally. You don't need to be a scientist. You don't need a master's degree. In fact, it's better not to talk about parts per million or tons of carbon in the atmosphere or the rate of ice melt. It's it's too technical for the vast majority of people. So don't feel like you need to speak in that register or or cram all of that information. It is enough and I think better to say God, these bushfires were absolutely devastating. I'm So scared about the future and I've just been wondering what I can do. What do you think? What do you feel? Inviting that kind of heart to heart interaction is An intervention in itself because, and you actually mentioned this earlier, the, I think you called it groupthink, which is a very good name for it. I I call it pluralistic ignorance, but it's the same idea, is about how humans evaluate risk. So we are a social species that looks at each other in times of possible danger. So if smoke started to fill a room where there was 10 people and people continued sitting and chatting and having coffee, it's amazing. You can prove it, you can you can prove this over and over again in the lab, but people will just sit there. They will just sit there as the room gets incredibly smoky if that's what the crowd is doing because they're looking around and saying, "Well, he's acting normal. She's acting normal." They're acting normal. This must be fine. It must. I mean, right? But if one person breaks the silence and says, you know, holy shit, guys, there's a fire. Then, boom, total change everything changes from speaking that truth. So in the climate emergency, this is happening en masse, right? People are just living their lives, going to work, saving for retirement, family planning, going on picnics, sports games, everything as though there were no emergency. And while many, many, many individuals. Polling shows increasingly large percentages of alarmed and concerned people were not talking to each other about it. And it creates these feelings of isolation, alienation, terror. So, Just breaking that silence and saying things, even though they can be socially awkward, they can be challenging, you do risk rejection. Someone might tell you, oh, you're a weirdo or something something like that. It is worth it, and it takes courage. That is the best place to start, but it is— probably not a great place to end, I encourage people to really dive in to this new movement, the climate emergency movement, and absolutely join with existing organizations or create a community organization or work with an organization that you're already working with but isn't focused on the climate emergency and get them to shift focus to put that front and center any organization that you work with can declare a climate emergency and start planning internally about how to reorient in order to do its part in this time of intense consequence.
0: And to Just to recall what you said earlier in the the discussion that we've had, the sort of resources that any individual listening to this show can draw on to be able to do this brave, courageous work is their own story and all the different experiences they've had across their lives and the sort of lessons that they've learned about when to stand up and how to stand up for things that matter to them.
1: Every person has a unique set of experiences and skills, networks, resources, challenges that they've overcome, and we need to bring it all to this movement, our whole selves. And when we do that, it's incredibly powerful. I really do believe that one person can change the world, but the way that they do that is by bringing in others. Yeah, yeah,
0: fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the program, inspiring us all to make big change. Thanks for having me. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. To find out more about Margaret's work, you can look up climatemobilisation.org, and that's mobilisation with a Z. You can also find Margaret on Twitter at Climate Psych. That's C-L-I-M-A-T-E-P-S-Y-C-H. Changemakers is produced by Ben Keating. Our audio producer is Jules Wooker. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at Sydney.edu.au backslash policy-lab. We are also supported by the Organising Cities project funded by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. i'm mark pesci and i'm exploring the future of tech with my podcast the next billion seconds listen for free at podcast one australia.com.au search the next billion seconds podcast or download the new podcast one australia app
1: podcast one